0: For you to open your Bible to the book of Revelation. Do you believe it? We have said that 162 times. And uh, the, the good news is uh, oh, we're on a roll now. I mean, we're we're almost done. Um, and tonight what we're gonna try to do is we're gonna try to cover a thousand-year period and uh and just Really, a short period of time. The next Sunday morning, we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Now, there are quite a few folks that, uh, because of just how life has changed uh, in the way that we're doing things, a lot of folks that... Uh, Weren't able to be a part of the the study of the book of Revelation as it was unfolding on Sunday morning. Now that we're here on Sunday night, a lot of you folks are are getting dialed into this thing. The book of Revelation, as you probably well know, is a book that intimidates a lot of folks. You know what I found in traveling to other parts of the world is that there are people, really, I mean, in the ministry, in other parts of the world, Asia particularly, that really think that the book of Revelation is a book that nobody can ever really understand, and it's just, you know, this mysterious thing that goes on. And a lot of them, you know, tell me that, and I'm just, you know, kind of like, yeah, mm -hmm, okay, whatever. But you know what? It is really one of the easiest books in the Bible to actually understand. It makes... A whole lot of sense the thing that makes it difficult is the fact of we look at all of this and we go I wonder what that means and the reason that we make it difficult on ourselves is it means exactly what it says and we're trying to figure out now I wonder what that's symbolic of it ain't symbolic of nothing It's going to happen just that way, and we get ourselves messed up because we think there's something symbolic in there. Now, there are symbolic things in the book of Revelation, but God's very clear when he's dealing with symbolism in the book to say, we're dealing with symbolism here, okay? And all of the rest of the time, you can just take the thing literally. It it divides very neatly. We saw heaven opens two times in the book, and when it opens, the first time, somebody goes up picture of the rapture. It's Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. This next time that it opens, Revelation 19 verse 11, heaven opens and somebody's coming out of that thing on a white horse being followed by a whole multitude of folks. The multitude of folks are all of you that are in the room tonight that are saved and the guy on the white horse is, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we know then in the book of Revelation where the rapture is, and we know where the second coming in is, and when you find that out, everything just begins to fall into place. Now, we've taken an enormous period of time to deal with a seven-year period that is called the period of tribulation. It's what takes place on the earth immediately after the church has been removed or caught up, raptured out. The reason we've taken so long on that is because God takes so long on that. In chapter 6, he begins to talk about the tribulation period, and he's covering the tribulation through chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. I mean, all of that. And we have seen the tribulation from four vantage points. Okay, And, of course, the tribulation culminates with the second coming, and God gives us in the book of Revelation... Four accounts of that tribulation period, again, culminating with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw it through the opening of seven seals. We saw it through the sounding of seven trumpets. We saw it through the revealing of seven personalities. And then we saw it through the pouring ...of seven vials, and God gives you four accounts. You'll get yourself messed up in this book if you try to to make this thing just a, a progression that begins in chapter 6 and goes through 19. What God does is he circles you through the tribulation period one time, and then he brings you through it a second time, and then a third time, and then a fourth time. And we've made the observation that the reason that God does that is because he gave you four accounts of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he does the same thing, gives you four accounts of the second coming of Christ in the book of Revelation. So we've taken a long time to cover that, and now we've come to chapter 20, and it describes an event that we call, yeah, why don't we bring that pup on down there? I thought it was already down. You guys were expecting we were going to baptize. Well, there you go. There you go thinking again. We don't pay you to think. We don't even pay them. <laughs> <laughs> but in Revelation chapter 20, it describes an event that is called <laughs> the millennium. <laughs> it takes a thousand years for that pup to come down too, man. Or at least it feels that way. We can want to beam that pup, Okay. Revelation 20 describes an event that we call the millennium. Okay? Now, the word millennium is not a Bible word, okay? The Bible word that is used here in Revelation chapter 20, in fact it's used 6 times in the first 7 verses is thousand years. Okay? The word millennium in the English comes from two words, milli meaning thousand and annum meaning years, okay? thousand years. And that's where we get the term millennium. What we're using as the title for this time is that time, look at the top of your sheet, when Christ finally gets what he deserves and when Satan finally gets what he deserves. Now, this this passage breaks the millennium down into four key events. We've already looked at the, the first one and it's taken us A long time to cover that that one. But in the first three verses, John describes the removal of Satan. The removal of Satan. And look with me in verse verse 1. He says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. Okay. And to really understand what is behind everything that's being said here, you've got to understand the whole panorama of human history, and the fact that for 6,000 years what Satan has been seeking to do for ever since God pulled man from the dust of the earth in Eden, what Satan has been trying to do is jerk man's chain. And what God says is at the beginning of the millennium, what he's going to do is he's going to, verse 1, he's going to jerk Satan's chains. If you understand, when you look in the Bible, for the last 6,000 years, what Satan has sought to do is he has sought to lay hold of man. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26, what it says is that man is, all of us in our lost state, we are held captive by Satan in his snare, being held captive there at his own will. And at the beginning of the millennium, in verse 2, what it says is that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to lay hold of him, and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take Satan captive at his own will, and he's going to cast his sorry behind right into the bottomless pit. For 6,000 years, Satan has sought to bind man in his sin, so that ultimately he'll be cast into hell. And what we find here in the beginning of the millennium in verse 2, it says that the Lord Jesus Christ at that period of time is going to Bind him and gonna cast him straight into hell for a thousand years for six thousand years Satan has been going the Bible says to and fro on the earth Seeking whom he may devour and at the beginning of the millennium verse 3 says that the Lord Jesus Christ at this point is No longer gonna let him go to and fro, but he's gonna shut him up He's gonna slam the door and he's gonna seal him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years So if you want to understand what this millennium is all about, understand first of all, Satan is going to be removed, and that's what's going to make this such a glorious period of time on this earth. But then secondly, the passage reveals to us the reign of saints, the reign of saints. And let's look in verse 4. He says, and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Now, let's just make sure of a few things. In the millennium, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is going to sit on the throne. Do understand, He is going to be, in the millennium, He's going to be the supreme ruler. Look, look back in verse 16 of chapter 19. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, and He will sit on The throne, as the ruler over the entire earth. Luke chapter 1 and verse 32 calls that throne that he'll sit upon. The throne of his father, David. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, calls it the throne of his glory. So he will sit on the throne as the supreme ruler, the king of kings and the lord of lords. But not only will the lord Jesus Christ be ruling and reigning During this period of time, what what John sees in in verse 4 is he sees others who are sitting on the throne. And in the millennium, the saints will sit on thrones, he he says. Look again in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Now, who is this they? Who is this them that he's talking about that are seated on this throne. And what's interesting is, is it's not completely clear by the text just who it is that he's actually seeing here, but we have the entire revelation of God here, and it's really easy to figure out who it is that's seated on these thrones that John is seeing just by looking at who is it in the Bible that has actually received the promise that they would sit on those thrones. And we find, as we do that, that first of all, Old Testament saints are the ones that he sees on this throne in the Old Testament book of Daniel in chapter seven and verse twenty seven Daniel said this, "And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom." And all dominions shall serve and obey him. He's describing, of course, this period of time spelled out for us in Revelation chapter 20, but he's talking about Old Testament saints being those that are, that are given to rule and to reign with him. But not only Old Testament saints, secondly, we know that these on thrones that John said that he saw, we know also, number two, that they are the twelve. The Twelve, as they're referred to in Scripture. A lot of times we refer to them as the, the Apostles. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 and 28, it says this, Then answered Peter and said unto him, that's the Lord, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, Ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so we know, because of the promise given to the twelve, that these that are sitting on these thrones that John's talking about in verse four, that were given judgment, not only is it the Old Testament saints, but it is also the twelve. And then thirdly, we know that these that are on thrones are also, number three, the church age saints. The Church age saints, the people who are living in the same dispensation that you and I have been living in, and what 's been going on for almost the last two thousand years, in the book of First Corinthians chapter six and verse two, Paul writes to the the believers there in that local church and says, "Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world, and of course that 's what John is seeing, those sitting on thrones that were given." Judgment In Revelation chapter 5, in verse 10, talking about the church in the context here, it says, "...and hast made us unto our God kings and priests," listen now, "...and we shall reign on the earth." In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says, "...and if children, that is, if we're children of God, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ." Okay, what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to have as an inheritance is the earth where He will rule and reign. And what He says here is that if you're His child, you are a joint heir with Christ. And now watch this: if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also, be, or we may be also glorified together. In 2 Timothy chapter two and verse twelve. Very interestingly, he says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Okay, And what we're beginning to see here now when it comes to these church-age saints that have been given the promise of being able to rule and reign and sit on thrones and receive judgment from the Lord Jesus Christ, what we learn is as far as this reigning with him is concerned, and this thing of us being joint heirs with Christ is that our suffering has uh, our suffering on the earth has a major place to play in all of this thing. Now, I want you to just think with me for a second, guys. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this same planet where you and I live. And when he did, what you find is that Satan came to him. Now, the reason he came to this planet was to... Take up a cross and die there. And when the Lord Jesus Christ began his ministry, do you remember what happened? The devil came out there into the wilderness where he was, and he began to offer him a crown. He began to offer to him the kingdoms of this world. And what did he do? He rejected the crown and he said, You know what I'll do? I'll take a cross. Because in taking that cross, what he was going to do is he was going to redeem to himself a kingdom of kings and priests of which you and I have become a part. And yet what is so weird that we sometimes miss is that here we are on the same planet and we don't realize that what the devil is actually seeking to do in our life is he seeking to come to us, and what He's trying to do is offer to us the crown now. And what is so sad is, though the last 2,000 years has had plenty of people that rejected that crown and said, no, I'll take up a cross and I'll follow, just like Jesus said. What's happened in these last days is we've been offered... A Christian life that has no suffering, that bears no reproach. And it is just a little bit weird that we miss the fact that 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 is still in our Bible and is just as true in the 21st century as it was in the first century. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 21 says, listen, yea, and all count them, All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall, what, suffer persecution. And yet somehow it is that we have found a way to be so much like the world's system that we're no longer the conscience of the world. And because we no longer are the conscience of the system and we no longer reveal to the world what a godly believer is really all about, we can just kind of skate along through life with no reproach and get the crown. And we've got it all going on, and yet it goes totally contrary to everything that we see in this book. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. Jot it down, but for time's sake, just just listen to it. It says, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without or outside the gate. Listen to the next verse. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Hey guys, there is a reproach that comes with following Christ. And when we follow Christ the way that he intended... And we have denied ourselves and we've taken up our cross. The reproach is still there. And all that live godly in Christ Jesus will still suffer persecution. You see, listen, the God of this world is Satan. And he hates the Lord Jesus Christ. He absolutely despises him. And listen, it wasn't enough just to beat him unmercifully as he was being brought to his execution. It wasn't enough for the nails to be pounded into his hands into his feet. It wasn't enough to jam that crown of thorns. It wasn't enough to have all of the mocking and and the jeering going on. It it wasn't enough for him. Paul comes along in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, and he says, you know what I'm rejoicing about? Listen up. You know what I'm rejoicing about, Paul says? That I'm filling up in my body that which is behind of the sufferings of Christ. You know what that's saying? The devil ain't through killing Jesus. He's not finished persecuting Him. He's not finished making Him suffer. And so you know what he wants to do? He wants to get at anybody that's like him. Anybody that actually lives the testimony of Jesus Christ and anybody that proclaims that book, I know it's the 21st century and I know we've got a lot of culture now. The God of this world is still ruling and reigning on this planet and when we live godly in Christ Jesus, there will still be a reproach to bear. There still will be suffering. There still will be persecution. It's just... If there's no persecution, what we've got to ask is not, did the Bible change? It's, are we living a godly life? Because, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so as we're talking about this ruling and reigning of saints, and we're talking about the church-age saints, us, and and you know, everywhere I go and ever since I've been a, a Christian, you know, people have been talking about that, about we're going to rule and reign on, on this, this planet. And you know what? We are. And I've been, trying to, I've been trying to press this button for the last several years, and I'm not sure that, that you've gotten it because I'm not sure that I've gotten it. But there is, guys, there is not equality in eternity. Eternity. It ain't like, you know, the the old quartet used to sing, everybody's going to have a wonderful time out there. Yeah, okay, we're all going to have a, a wonderful time ruling and reigning with Christ in the millennium, but please do not think for a second. that Everybody just kind of has the same exact place going on in this thing. Now, I'm not going to try to... You know, cheese this thing out to where yes, some of you're going to be garbage men, and some of you're going to be, you know, sporting you know crowns and and sitting on on thrones. I'm just talking. You begin to look at what this, what this book actually has to say. We, we've talked about it before, so I'm going to I'm going to try to resist the urge to to take you there and and wear us all out with this thing. But in Second Thessalonians chapter one, what he's talking about there in verses four and five hes he 's talking to these Thessalonian believers who are listen to it now <clears throat> suffering being persecuted unmercifully, and he says, "You know what everywhere we go in all of the churches man we 're just talking about you guys, the thessalonians and and how patient you are through all of the tribulation and all of the persecution that you go through and then he he, he tells them what they 're doing he says they are suffering." For the kingdom of God, he comes down in verse 11 of 2 Thessalonians 1, same passage. And he says, you know how I'm praying for you? I'm praying that God will count you worthy to give him the praise and honor and glory that is going to be his when he comes and he sets up this kingdom on the earth. I'm praying that through all these persecutions and the suffering you're going through, that he'll count you worthy. Now listen. If Paul is praying that they'd be counted worthy at that time, do you think he's just going through an exercise of futility? He's praying that because it is possible to be praising and honoring and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes to this planet and sets up his kingdom and not even be counted worthy for what it is that you're actually doing. we've, We've talked about this. What we're doing right now, through the service of our life, is we are preparing our place in eternity. Now listen, don't hear that as, we're working for our salvation. No, you were given the salvation that you've received by God's mercy and God's grace, and you received that gift the moment you called upon his name to save you. But after that, You were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And all of those works do play into this thing because we're all coming to the judgment seat of Christ and we're all going to give an account of the work that we did when we're in this body and based on what we've been doing, and you know this because we spell this out so clearly in the discipleship material, what happens is you are rewarded based on your service for the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And you're given crowns, crowns that we don't, you know, sport around as we're ruling and reigning on the earth. What do we do with those crowns? We cast those crowns at his feet. Now, you know what? You can differ with me on this. You don't have to, to believe this. But I believe beyond any shadow of a doubt, and this is, and I, I would, I, I'm, I'm talking, I'd go hook, line, and sinker on this thing that that's not just, in my thinking, a one-time event. We throw those crowns and we are able to give him the glory, okay? What I think is the casting of those crowns represents your capacity and your ability throughout the remainder of eternity to worship, to love, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. It all has to do with what's going on in our world right now. And some of us are just grinning that we're going we're to escape the flame of the pits of hell when this whole thing is really all about giving the Lord Jesus Christ the honor and the worship and the glory that He deserves. So... Church-age saints are some of those that are sitting on those thrones that are, that are given judgment. But again, recognize what's going on in life right now. We're all preparing ourselves for that time and the judgment that will be given to us. But there's another group given the promise of ruling and reigning with Christ. And, and this is a group that is identifiable right here in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, and they are, number 4, the tribulation saints. The tribulation saints. Look at verse 4 again. He says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And watch this now. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, And for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And what John describes here, and we've seen this throughout our study of the tribulation period right here in the book of Revelation, is that under the reign of the Antichrist in the tribulation period, That the people who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in that tribulation period, many, most of them, will be martyred. And the reason that they will, and again, this is carried throughout the the book of of Revelation as we've seen, and it's detailed for us right here in in, in verse 4. They will be martyred, letter A, because of the witness of Jesus. Because of the witness of Jesus. B, because they faithfully proclaim the word of God, and C, because they refuse to worship the beast or his image. And then fourthly, letter D, because they refuse to take his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And these people that come to Christ, that suffer martyrdom, they're going to be resurrected during the millennial period and they will be given Thrones, and guys, now, now please try to, try to pull it in and, and, and think with me. The Lord Jesus Christ is finally going to get this, this kingdom that the whole Bible has been pointing toward. He's going to be ruling and reigning on the throne and He's going to have others that He, that he allows to sit on thrones that will be given judgment as we've been talking about. And I I just want you to catch now. I want you to catch the caliber of people that we're talking about. That we're going to be ruling and reigning with. Just so we might really understand what this thing is all about. Okay? We we talked about these Old Testament saints. Listen to this. In, In Hebrews chapter 11, as God is recounting... Those that have gone before us. And what he's doing in Hebrews 11 is he's walking us through those Old Testament saints. You want to know who it is we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ during this period of time? You want to know who it is? Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 38. Listen. People, it says, who were tortured, not accepting deliverance. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, or sawn in half. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And I love this line. He puts in parentheses right in the midst of all of this list, of whom the world was not worthy. And I just got to ask myself, as I'm reading about the fact that these are the people that are going to be sitting on those thrones, the same thrones that are offered to you and I. And I got to just ask myself, I know the world isn't worthy of those folks i just got to be wondering if I'm going to be worthy to be sporting some kind of throne with people like that. The the 12, they're going to have thrones and be judging. And do you realize that all of them died a martyr's death other than perhaps John who wrote the Revelation, who was exiled in the latter years of his life? To the Isle of Patmos where he died a a lonely, lonely man isolated from the rest of humanity. But all the rest of the twelve, you can go through the list, they all died martyr's death. And they'll be sitting on thrones. And because we live in the period of time that we live in, and because we live in the part of the world that we live in, we really can't identify with the fact that even with the church age saints, A minimum, minimum of 50 million of our brothers and sisters through the years laid their life down on the line so that we might be able to hold the true Word of God in our hands tonight and have the real Jesus alive in our heart. They laid their life down because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the people that are going to be sitting on those thrones, not to mention the tribulation people who lose their head, literally, and we're talking about something that's going to be taking place in the very near future, and it's not symbolism. People who will literally have their head lopped off of their shoulders because of the witness of Jesus, because they faithfully proclaimed the Word of God, because they would not bow their knee to worship the beast or his image, and because, goodness gracious, man, because they would not take the mark that would identify them in any way, shape, or form with Satan's system. And yet here we are, these people in the last days that are talking about ruling and reigning with Christ. And very few people in these last days ever witness about Jesus. Very few ever give their testimony and proclaim the Word of God. Most people that claim to be believers today bow their knee every single day of their life to the world's system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And most believers in these last days are marked with the world. There's no real difference. We sin the same sins that lost people sin, but we're going to rule and reign with Christ. I do want to remind you people we're going to be ruling and reigning with are some heavy-duty folk. And it'll do all of us well tonight to get off of our high layout of sea and horse and all of the big plans we have for ruling and reigning in that kingdom. and Just begin to ask some hard questions. Am I going to be worthy to be sitting on thrones next to that kind of folk. So, all these these groups of people are going to be resurrected at the beginning of the millennium to sit on thrones and will be given judgment. And verse 5 says, But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Okay, now, now now think with me. This is the first resurrection. That is, the, the resurrection of all of these saints who will rule and reign with Christ, that's what God calls the first resurrection. That's letter C on your outline. The resurrection of these saints in the millennium is called the first resurrection. Okay, all of these saints are going to be resurrected. God says that's the first resurrection. Okay, This resurrection that he calls the first resurrection, in Luke chapter 14 and verse 14, Acts chapter 24, verse 15, it's also called the resurrection of the just. In John chapter 5 and verse 29, it's also called the resurrection of life in 1 corinthians fifteen verses twenty one to twenty three it's also called the resurrection of they that are Christ at his coming, they that are Christ at his coming and in Hebrews chapter eleven and verse thirty five it's also called a better resurrection and the reason it's called a better resurrection is there is another resurrection and let 's just notice a couple of things here about this event that he calls the first resurrection, the first resurrection, listen now, isn't spiritual. It's physical. This resurrection that he's talking about is a physical resurrection. And yet he calls it the first resurrection. Now you see, you and I, that have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have been resurrected. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says that we've been buried with him, In baptism, okay, so we've died, we've been buried, and he says what has happened is he's raised us with the same power that God put into operation when he raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And we have had a spiritual resurrection. And though we've had a spiritual resurrection in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 says that he's raised us up spiritually to sit with Christ, that's not the first resurrection. There is that resurrection, and all of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ have experienced that. But this resurrection that he's talking about here is a physical resurrection. And notice also, there are two physical resurrections. And they are resurrections of two completely different groups of people. One of the physical resurrections is this first resurrection, which is the resurrection of the saved or the saints. There is another physical resurrection, and that's the resurrection we're going to be talking about next Sunday morning that's described for us in verses 11 through 15. It's the resurrection of the dead. This is the resurrection of life. This is the resurrection of the dead. And the second resurrection is associated with the second death. And the second death is defined for you in verse 14, right here in this passage, as the lake of fire and the two resurrections that we're talking about here are a thousand years apart. Okay? The first resurrection is at the beginning of the millennium and it's the resurrection of the saints, of all of the saved, it's all of the groups of people that we were just talking about. The other resurrection is the resurrection of all of the unsaved, and they're going to be physically standing before Jehovah God at what is called a great white throne, and the books are going to be opened, and it is going to be a fierce, unbelievably fierce period of time. And look at what verse 6 says about those who have a part in this first resurrection. John says in verse 6, "...Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection." On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. And what I want you to note, just to, to be able to, to get this synchronized in your head in a, in a really succinct fashion, let's look for just a second or talk about the blessedness of those who have a part in this first resurrection. Okay, now if, if, if I croaked right now or if I had you turn to your neighbor right now, to explain the first resurrection. Do you understand what it is? Do you, I mean, are you tracking with me here? First resurrection is the resurrection of all the saints. It's all the people that are, that are saved. Okay? And he talks about the blessedness of those who have a part in this. First of all, their state. Their state. He says they are blessed or happy. You know what? If you have a part in the first resurrection, man... Really, for the first time in your life, you're going to know what it is to be completely blessed of God. This is what Romans chapter 8 says that we groan for. It's the full manifestation of the sons of God. We're going to leave this body and we're going to have a glorified body and we will be blessed. We will be truly happy. Number two, notice they're standing. They're standing, he says, blessed and holy. Are standing. Those of us that have a part in the first resurrection, our standing is holy. Now, now listen, this is, this is important that you just get this in your mind. Your standing because of Christ for all of eternity is holy because you were placed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you were sealed. And all of the saints at this point, all of those that are resurrected in that first state, or first resurrection, all of us who have a part in that first resurrection... All of us, through the remainder of the millennium and on into eternity, our state will be holy. Now the reason that's so important is because there is a major twist that's getting ready to happen in this chapter. And there's a lot of people that are going to be in the millennium that are going to go straight to hell and will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. But it ain't you. And it ain't any of the people that have a part in the first resurrection, because your state is holy. And then, thirdly, their security. And this is this is what he spells out for us in verse six. They're unaffected by the second death. Do you remember what the second death is? It's in verse fourteen. It's being cast into the lake of fire. And for all of those who have a part in the first resurrection, to all of the saints that we talked about, your security is the fact that you will be unaffected, be unaffected by that second death. We're going to be blessed during the millennium because there will be no true child of God who will ever face God's eternal wrath. And the Bible is so clear about this in Romans chapter five, five and verse nine. It says that because we have been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath to come. But do mark it, there is a wrath to come. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, it says that Jesus delivered us from the wrath to come. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, it says about those of us who have received the Lord Jesus Christ, who will have a part in the first resurrection. For God hath not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the security that we're going to have and having a part in this first resurrection is we'll be unaffected by the wrath of God or the second death, the lake of fire. And then fourth, he talks about their service. Their service. He said we'll be priests of God and of Christ will be priests. Now we're priests. Now the Bible says we're a royal priesthood. He, of course, is, is the high priest, but we are we're priests with him, and we will be priests in the millennial period. We will worship God. We will continue to offer spiritual sacrifices to Him. We'll be priests. And the number five. Notice their su- supervision. Their supervision. He says we shall reign. With him, with Christ, a thousand years. So our state is blessed or happy. Our standing is holy. Our security, we're unaffected by the second death. Our service, we're priests of God and of Christ. Our supervision, we will reign with him for a thousand years. So we've seen, number one, the removal of Satan. Number two, we've seen the reign of saints... And now, number three. The return of Satan. Sounds like a a movie title, doesn't it? The the return of Satan. Now showing. Verse 7. It says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Now, you just got to wonder... With all the blessedness that's gone on for a thousand years on this planet, as that sorry sucker has been cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years, the question is, why would God allow him to return? Why would he allow him to come back to this planet? Now, now understand this, okay, and get this, this in your mind. There are going to be some people both Jews and Gentiles, who are going to enter into the millennial period in their normal human bodies. And there will be children that will be born in the millennium, okay? And, and the Bible is, is very, very clear uh, about all of this as you begin to, to just compare Scripture with Scripture. What you find is that during the millennial period, sickness and disease and all of that kind of stuff, and we, we've talked about these things in the last several weeks, it's going to be a whole different thing. And he talks about people will refer to children as people that are 100 years of age. People are going to live in the millennium a whole lot longer than they're living right now. And the ability for procreation is going to continue a whole lot longer than it does right now. People ain't going to die. You know what that's telling you? There is going to be, during the millennium, a massive population explosion. And you've got to understand that these people who are born into this earth during the millennium, they're going to be born into this world as perfect as the world is going to be at that time. And even though Satan is cast in the bottomless pit, do understand something. Those people are going to be born into this world the same way that you and I were born into this world. They're going to be born onto this planet with a sin nature, Now for a thousand years, you're not really going to see the the, the full manifestation of that sin nature like we're able to see it in in, in this period of time. And and do realize, because Satan has been bound, there is no deception. So you've got Jesus Christ ruling and reigning the deceiver. And and, and just would you look in this passage, look at verse 3. Just get this in your mind about Satan and it says and cast him that is Satan into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more drop down to verse eight and shall this is after he's loosed and shall go out to what to deceive the nations and look at verse ten and the devil that deceived them listen one of the, his main marks and don't don't miss this right now is he is the great deceiver and, and so here you, in the millennium you, you've got a whole different physical e- economy going on in, in the world you've got christ present and so it's a kingdom of peace and righteousness and joy in in the holy ghost but now now listen In every dispensation, and what we're trying to figure out is, okay, why is is Satan going to be loosed out of his prison after this thousand-year period? In every dispensation, God has always given to every individual, he's always given a choice. What we find in eternity past is that Lucifer and the other cherubim and seraphim and angels... At one period of time, they all had the ability to choose whether or not they're going to worship and glorify and follow God. You come into the garden, and what does God do? He puts a tree in that garden that represents his what? His choice. And because of his choice, all of us that have been born from Adam's loins, which is all of us, All of us are faced with a choice. We've talked about this before. A choice that is represented on a tree because Jesus Christ hung on a tree. Okay? And so Adam was offered a choice of whether or not he was going to follow God and it was represented in a tree. You and I, or all of us, and some of you folks that are in here have never made this choice distinctly to where you've actually chosen to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's represented in a tree. Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, rose again the third day. That's the gospel. And every single one of us are faced with a decision of are we going to choose to go our own way or are we going to choose the way to the Father which is manifested through a tree? But every single person will always face a choice. And these people that were are born into the millennium, are going to be faced with a choice. And that is, are they going to follow God or are they not? And and what is just just absolutely mind-boggling to me is that what we're about to see here is that many of the people who will be born into this earth and with their physical eyes have seen Jesus Christ And seeing Him ruling in all of His power and His glory. And after seeing that for a period of a thousand years, many of them, many will choose when Satan is loosed to follow Him rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And what it reveals, if it doesn't reveal anything else, is that eliminating sin isn't as simple as changing the nature of man's environment. And man has been pressing that button for about the last 6,000 years. But it's not that easy, because man's problem isn't the nature of his environment, it's the nature of his heart. And that is going to be so unbelievably revealed in the millennial period. But God is going to give every person a choice. But but we, we look at that and we say, how in the world could man possibly revolt after seeing all of that? And you know what we forget? We forget that this has happened throughout the ages. Because do you remember? Lucifer, the anointed cherub, the, the most incredible creation of God, saw the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of His glory and yet chose to rebel against Him and brought a third of the angels with Him in the rebellion. Have we forgotten that Adam was placed into a perfect environment in a relationship with the Holy Creator, God, who walked as the voice of God, the Word of God, in the fullness of His glory as He revealed Himself in that garden? And what did man do? He chose to rebel. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this planet and walked on this earth Performed miracles proving that he was God. He was the the manifestation of the glory of God in a human body. And yet when it was all said and done. You got a ragtag group of about 120 folks that are gathering in an upper room. And listen. There were thousands and thousands. That heard him. That saw him. That touched him. And were touched by him. And yet, they rebelled. And so what we're going to find is, you know what? This sin nature, it runs really, really deep, man. Because people, even seeing with physical eyes all that they're going to see in the millennium, still make that incredibly wrong choice. So, number one, we looked at the removal of Satan, we look at the reign of saints, the return of Satan, and now let's just briefly talk about the revolt of society, the revolt of society. Now, I want you to, want you to just to imagine what it what it's going to be like now. At the beginning of the millennium, what's going to take place is, as we saw in verses 1 through 3. Satan is going to be cast into the bottomless pit, and he's going to be shut up there. He's going to be... You know what he is? He's a caged lion. Now, right now, he is a lion that goeth about, goeth to and fro on the earth, seeking whom he may devour. And and, and just get the, the picture of this. For a thousand years, God binds him up in this little cell... Down in the bottomless pit and for a thousand years, that roaring lion, just like that in the zoo, man. Back and forth for a thousand years, for a thousand years, for a thousand years. And with all of the hatred for God that is within him and for a thousand years without any way to let any of that out, man. All of a sudden, after a thousand years, verse 7 says that he's loosed out of that prison. And listen, the incarceration hasn't done one thing to reform him. He is absolutely coming with a venom, probably unlike any other period of time. And he comes out and verse 8 says, And he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. He's talking about the four main points of the compass. The north, the south, the east, and the west. He's back, man, as that roaring lion going to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. He's going to go out to the four quarters of the earth to deceive. He says, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. And and what John does here through the inspiration of the Spirit is he gives these enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ who will be deceived by Satan at this period of time. He, he gives to them this title, Gog and Magog, naming them after the invading forces that we find in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 that are going to come upon the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. And do you remember what happens when Gog and Magog come down? Do you remember who Gog and Magog is? Who is it? It's Russia, and during the tribulation period, Russia is going to be looking down at the nation of Israel, seeing all of the spoils that are there, and they're on hard times, and this is all spelled out in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and what it says is they're going to come down, and they're going to attack the nation of Israel, and what God is going to do is God is going to... Wham! Welcome back, some of you. He is going to fry their bodies... And what it says, it'll take the nation of Israel seven months to bury the bodies from when God lets loose. And so what a little foreshadowing here of what's getting ready to happen. He calls them by the same name because the same thing is getting ready to happen to this group of people. And, and here's what is just so wild to me. The number of the people... That Satan is actually successful in deceiving. He says the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. People who came and bowed at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ during the millennium. A number like the sand of the sea who are now rebels to his lordship, and it says, and they went up on the the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about. Now get the picture here. What Satan has done is he's gone to the four quarters of the earth, north, the south, and the east and the west, seeking to deceive people, seeking to to turn them away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't worry, it ain't you. It our standing is what. Is holy. You're not going to make a wrong choice in this thing. It's secure. Okay, it's people that were born into the millennium that are being faced with their choice. Okay, and they're gathered up from the four quarters of the earth. They come from all over the earth and compass the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and that of course is is Jerusalem. And Just like when Gog and Magog, just like when Russia came on on, on the nation of Israel, and just like when the battle of Armageddon was taking place at the the end of the tribulation period. They all come to converge upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints there in the beloved city, the city of Jerusalem, and I just absolutely love the last part of verse 9. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Listen, they all come. A number that is like the sand of the sea, John says. And they're coming following behind their leader now, Satan. And they're going to come, buddy, and they're going to they're gonna show the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 12 words, the battle is over. Nobody fires a shot. Nobody pulls a hand grenade. No tanks fire any shots. No bombs are dropped out of the sky except for the one that God drops. And he says, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. They're they're cremated in the fires that kill them. Just like that. Listen, the battle is over before it even starts. They think they're going to... And it's just is this not the weirdest thing in the world? Satan just keeps trying to pull this thing off. Maybe we can do it this time. Bam! I love to be able to hear that bam circulate around this room about 50 times. Wait till it really happens, man. And do note that fire from heaven is how God has often judged sinners in in the Bible. And we'll just have to do this quickly in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 24. You remember what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah? You know what happened? Same thing that happened here. Fire came down and... In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2... Nadab and Abihu come and offer strange fire to God, and God's got some fire of his own and, and devours them. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 10. It's Elijah and the prophets of Beelzebub. And they've got their captain of 50 there. And it, it, it Elijah is, oh, he's nervous. He's nervous. Yeah. God just takes that fire out of heaven. And then in Luke chapter nine verse fifty four, Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and you know what? Nobody gives a rip. James and John, you know what they're called in the Bible? The sons of sons of thunder. They said, "Hey, you want us to call fire down out of heaven and just wipe them off the map? You, you want to, Elijah did that way in the way back. You want to do it again? Come on, please." So God's done this, this many times. And, and, and now listen, some of you that are in this room tonight are people that have never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And I want you to know something, the Bible is very clear about this. God is love. 1 John chapter 4, and verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In that same passage, verse 16, it says, And, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us, God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Yes. Make no mistake about it. God is a God of love, and tonight, He offers His incredible love to you, and He wants to receive you unto Himself and make you His child. But please, don't reject Him. Because you'd think that he is simply a God of love. Because the same book that reveals that God is love also reveals that God is a consuming fire. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24, it says, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 3. Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire, and he shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before thy face. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29, it says, For our God is a consuming fire. In Isaiah 66 and verse 15. It says, For behold, the Lord will come at His second coming when He comes to set up His kingdom with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. In Psalm 97, in verse 3, it says, A fire, and again, the context is the second coming of Christ, not the end of the millennium, but at the beginning, a fire goeth before Him and burneth up His enemies round about. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, it says that He will return, being revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find here in Revelation chapter 20 is at the end of the millennium, fire will come down and physically devour these people. And when that happens, listen now, they're not annihilated. There is no such thing as annihilation. Their bodies physically are cremated by the fire that falls from heaven, but their souls will immediately go to hell as they await their final sentencing, which is, for these folks, going to be in the very near future and is spelled out in verses 11 through 15. Okay? And then verse 10 says, God will also deal with their leader. Look at verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Do you remember them? We haven't seen them for a little while. You know why? Because they've been in this thing, this lake of fire. They've been there for the last thousand years already. And now, the third part of the satanic trinity is going to join him. Satan himself. And so Satan will be there along with the beast and the false prophet. And the end of verse 10 says, And that he shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. I appreciate it. You know what? He finally gets what he deserves and he will be tormented listen day and night forever and ever resist the urge to pack up right now and i want you to listen to me this next passage when this second resurrection takes place listen what happens is all of the people that have rejected Jesus Christ people that you and I work with every day people in our families people in our neighborhoods will be physically resurrected and will stand at the end of the millennial reign of Christ will stand before God as he is seated on his great white throne and the Bible says that the books will be opened and then every person will go to their final place of torment it's the same place where Satan and the beast and the false prophet are wow mouthful here tonight A lot of stuff that ought to cause all of us that know Christ to just kind of step back and say, Wow, I think I might ought to, in light of some of the folks we'll be ruling and reigning with on this planet, might ought to just step back and just look at my life and see why it is that I can go massive periods of time and never be able to witness for Jesus. Never have the opportunity to open that book and proclaim it. Why it is that some of us constantly finding ourselves bowing before the gods of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. and Why it is that we're so marked by everything that marks the rest of this world. And while we're looking at all of that, we ought to be thinking about the torment that is going to come upon our field, man. And for the last uh, the last several months now, we've been talking about reaching our field and reaching our field. You know what? We've even changed our whole approach of what we're doing, the reason we're doing this on Sunday night so that we can do some things to, to reach our field. Guys, the reason we're doing this is because of the reality of everything that we're talking about here. The devil is a deceiver, and he right now is seeking to deceive the people in our own field. And we've got, we've got this book in our hands. We've got the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. The only thing that is lacking is a door to be able to talk to these people. And God says, listen, would you just pray for the doors to be opened so that you can reach people with the Gospel? Do understand now, just like with those tribulation saints, if you really get serious about this thing, you will suffer persecution. It will come. Okay? But if we suffer, will reign with him. Is that a good enough exchange for you? If you're here tonight and you don't know that you know that you know that you've truly been born again, oh, would you let God work in your heart tonight? Please don't click him off. In just a minute here, we're going to break up into flocks all over this, this room. Some of you, you don't need to go to a flock tonight. Some, You don't need to go to a pastor's reception tonight. You don't need to meet us. You need to meet God. God tonight is a God of love that extends His arms to you and says, Will you come? but His wrath is coming. And on that day, He will not be a God of love. He will be a consuming fire. Now, Are you ready? Or do you know tonight that you're ready? Would you bow your heads? And again, I'd like to just... Say to you that are here tonight that have never trusted Christ, may not ever be a night quite like tonight for you. And, And I say that not because of necessarily anything that's happened here, it's just that God has brought you to a place right now to confront you with things that you might never be confronted like this with again in your life. And it might just be real easy from here on out to just forget this night when you got real uncomfortable in a church service and the spirit of the living God was was knocking on your heart, trying to get your attention. Now listen, if God is speaking to your heart tonight, Swallow the pride. Humble yourself before God. And call upon His name. Our pastors are going to be remaining in this, this room as we're being dismissed. Hey, listen. Don't worry about anything else other than you dealing with what God is dealing with you about tonight. And those of you that do know that you saved... Oh, would you let God take the things we've talked about tonight and drive them into your heart and change the remainder of your life, your service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, would you work in the hearts of people in this room. I, I have, I've sought to be as true to this text as I know how to be and proclaim the truth of your Word. And, and yet, Lord, I realize that unless you... By Your Spirit, reprove people of sin and of righteousness and of judgment unless You, Father, draw people to Yourself. It's all been for naught. It's, it's futile. And so, Lord, I'm asking You tonight to do what only You can in the hearts of, of people in this room. May they respond in obedience to the good news that Jesus died and was buried and rose again, that we might have our sin removed and might be able to have a relationship with a holy, loving God. Oh, God, please do that miracle in the lives of people in this room tonight. And for all of us that do know You, help us to prepare for the time when You will take up the throne of Your glory and rule and reign on this planet. And, O Lord, may we throughout that entire millennial reign and throughout the remainder of eternity, may we be counted worthy to give You the glory and the praise and the worship that we will give You. May we be counted worthy of it because of our willingness to suffer, our willingness to lay it all on the line in this life. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Now, in your book,